Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. My special guest artist for today is the founder and conductor of the Peacherine Ragtime Society Orchestra. Behind me is my guest artist conducting the PRSO on their recording of Knockout Drops, an American ragtime song composed by F. Henry Clickman in 1910. My guest is one of the leading authorities on orchestral ragtime and silent film accompaniment in the U.S. and the curator of several prominent orchestral collections that totals over 15,000 selections focusing heavily on the music of 1882 to 1935. The Peacherine Ragtime Society Orchestra presents programs that highlight the music of the late 1800s and early 1900s by composers such as Irving Berlin and the King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin. Their silent film programs feature the biggest names of the day, such as Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, just to name a few. Along with his ragtime orchestra, this conductor and curator certainly got chops. Please welcome Andrew Green. Hi, Andrew. This is Scott from Got Chops. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Very good. Thank you so much for granting me this time to interview you. I'm looking so forward to that. I came in contact with Andrew, oh, let's see, probably uh, halfway through January. I was at a gig that I was playing at the uh, New York City Hilton Midtown, and it was for the Association of Performing Arts Professionals Conference. That's the APAP. So in every room, you hear phenomenal, phenomenal artists, and the producers are going around to see if that's someone or a group that they would like to book. And I noticed this uh, flyer for this Ragtime Society Orchestra that plays behind silent films in all different types of presentations. So I took it and I contacted Andrew and here we are. This is the first time that we're speaking on the phone. 
I'm, I'm so happy to do this and uh, to introduce you to my audience, especially for an audience of young people that this is, uh, you know, beyond anything they've ever heard of. So thank you for doing this. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And it's it's a lot of fun having young people playing old music that many people have glossed over <laughs> just because it's antiquated. It's old. It's not quite classical. It's not quite jazz. It's ragtime. So as the founder and director of the Peacherine Ragtime Society Orchestra, what does the music slang Got Chops mean to you? For, for Got Chops, I would say it's definitely, you know, putting in the time and the effort, uh, especially making sure you're doing things to both really present yourself and the music that you're playing in the highest possible format. Uh, and especially with music that I do, ragtime, theater, dance music, and accompanying silent films. It's also making sure we are taking the appropriate credence and learning from the old recordings of 19-teens and 20s. That way we pay honor and homage to them and bring that music to life at the highest possible caliber of performance. And certainly through that, lots of rehearsing, lots of you know diligence to make sure not only are you playing the correct notes, but with the correct nuance, the correct technique, and putting in that time to deliver a steady product that audiences everywhere can enjoy. That's a great answer. Really great. So you currently live in Rock Hill Furnace, PA, home of the historic East Broadtop Railroad. Is that where you were born and grew up? No, I actually uh, moved up to Rock Hill about a year ago. I grew up just outside of Annapolis, Maryland, right on the Chesapeake Bay. And for pretty much all of my life have been down there uh, until moving up here. Uh, I have two passions in my life. My my first passion is music, which I was introduced to at the age of probably you know several weeks old as my mother and my father and other lineages also musicians. But my grandfather got me into trains. And over time, that had us traveling all over the U.S. and uh, found a railroad about three hours from where I grew up called the East Broadtop. And a couple of years ago, the railroad was purchased by a new nonprofit organization that's been restoring and bringing back this little short line railroad back to life. And I was fortunate to get involved with them. So I get to have two careers where one is following my passion and one is following my heart. And if you ask me which one is which, it changes on a daily basis. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. But I can see how they um, come together because you're so interested not only in the past of the railroad, but in the music from, you know, a bygone era. So seems like it's all meant to be. It is. And I even run the Central Pennsylvania Ragtime and American Music Festival here in Rock Hill. And we're able to partner with the railroad and as well as some of the local arts councils and communities to be able to put on music and events where you can tie in both aspects. Because everything from this era, sort of the, the turn of the century, circa 1900, is so fun. It's so full of ingenuity and new ideas and this cultural melting pot. And certainly trains and music also go very well together. You look at films from that era you know things like the general or chasing tutus and you know trains were on the cultural forefront and what was accompanying those films about trains ragtime music wow that's fascinating so where did you attend music college and what was your major so 
I always love to tell this story because it's not the answer that anyone's actually expecting. Um, I do not have a degree in music. However, I am classically trained. Um, I grew up, you know, playing the piano, playing several different instruments, including the cello, the bass, the clarinet, mallet percussion, um, and, you know, thought for a while I was going to try to be a concert piano player. And eventually, when I did get into ragtime, you know, that was really my passion, my my new sort of thing. Uh, and when I went to apply to music schools, they said no for the sole reason that I played ragtime because it didn't quite fit their mold of what classical music was and it didn't quite fit their mold for their jazz programs. So I had to venture out on my own um, and actually ended up attending the University of Maryland and got a degree in economics, uh, which I've been sort of thankful for because I have now the business acumen to run an organization like a touring ragtime orchestra. Um, but I've certainly gotten a lot of help from many professionals in the industry who have been playing this sort of music for decades before me. Um, other orchestra leaders, sound film accompanists, historians, musicologists who have all, you know, helped me on my journey to get me where I am now. Kudos to you. Bravo. Thank you. Yeah, I remember my first year of college, I had actually began at the University of Maryland in College Park as an engineering major thinking my passion for trains could get me with a career in civil engineering. Uh, but I always had this music bug in my ear. And by that point, I had just started teaching. And I went to several different professors at the School of Music with stacks of historic orchestral scores that dated back to the 1860s and said, you know, I want to do something with this. You know, I want to try to find the right mentor and someone that could get me uh you know, really going in a career, especially in musicology, so that way we can appreciate the people and the culture and that association with the world at large with this music. And a lot of them looked through the scores and their eyes got wide and they, they thought it was all incredible. But again, it's not quite in that same vein of, well, if you're doing classical, we expect you to do all of the, the usual things. We don't really have a program for Scott Joplin. <laughs> and I understood that. And it, forced me to take my own path, uh, which, you know, was a interesting approach, but I think it has paid off in the long run. And certainly some of those professors that I approached before, I'm still connected with um, and, and call upon as friends and occasional uh, assistance to whether whatever music I'm studying at the time and trying to find an answer to a composer's story or confirm an anecdote about a piece, that sort of thing. Well, I'm sure that they follow you, and they're very proud of, of what you've done, and they admire what you've done. So let's talk about the Picherine Ragtime Society Orchestra. It's considered the leading professional ragtime orchestra in the U.S. What was the appeal and inspiration for you to pursue this musical path besides what you were talking about before? So the road to ragtime for me got started when I was about 10 years old. And during that time, I was taking piano lessons. And as many young people have most likely experienced when playing music at a young age, they can get frustrated or over time, you know, there's definitely that tipping point where you'll choose whether to continue with music and whether you'll stop. And I was right at that tipping point where I was getting, for lack of a better term, fed up with playing Chopin etude after Chopin etude. It was a lot of the same music in my mind. It was boring, uh, all of which now I have completely turned a 180 on and immediately respect <laughs> But uh, 
during that time was just getting tired of it. And as a break from Beethoven and Bach and all of that, my piano teacher said, I'm going to give you a fun piece of music. And once we learn that one, we'll run with it a little bit and we'll then go back to another, you know, piece by Rachmaninoff or someone. And the piece was the Maple Leaf Rag. And from the first few notes that I clunked down on the piano, trying to figure out this new thing called syncopation. And I remember going home from that piano lesson overjoyed and approached my mother, who at one point was a bar pianist up in Connecticut and was the music director at our local church, um, saying, oh, my gosh, look at this piece that my piano tutor gave me. Do we have anything else by this Scott Joplin person? And she went down and got a copy of the entertainer out from the basement. And I just sat down at the piano and it was like a whole new world of music was just given to me. And it was incredible. The, the how fun that music is really spoke to me in a way that a lot of other music hasn't. And I always am thankful to my my tutor, her name's Skeffa Klegnot, that she realized that this was where the excitement was, the energy was. And so she was able to support that and started having me work through books of Joplin material and eventually other composers from that era. Well, of course, still giving me, you know, the usual classical rep that any pianist should be playing. Um, but that really got me going for, for many years. And I actually did two benefit concerts, I think at the age of 11 and 12 of just the music of Scott Joplin and raised several thousand dollars for a couple of organizations down in Maryland. Wow, that's great. Well, that's certainly a pivotal moment for you. And if you didn't have that, maybe you would have discovered ragtime later on. Absolutely. So speaking about that, for my young listeners, please explain what ragtime is. So ragtime is a musical form that was popular primarily between 1897 and 1917. Certainly its influences go back much earlier, um, but was a, it was the combination of the European classical forms and especially marches and two steps that were then combined with the rhythms of African-American musicians and uh, places in the deep South and the Midwest that all came together to create what really is America's first popular music style. It's very interesting reading the old newspapers and articles at the time when this music was coming into itself and people were calling it ragged and how dare this music be out of time. They couldn't figure out what was going on or where the beat was supposed to be. And over time, those ideas of being ragged music with its syncopation, where the emphasis on the beat is not the emphasis on the beat, it's on somewhere else and it throws people off. Um, you know, bringing that together over time, the words just got shortened down to ragged time and then finally ragtime. Um, and as I said, had its heyday up until about the later part of the 19 teens when this newfangled thing called jazz took over. Um, <laughs> I always love to tell people, though, uh, there's a fantastic quote by U.B. Blake, who was a fantastic African-American musician, wrote pieces like I'm Just Wild About Harry, Memories of You, Love Will Find a Way. Um, he, he put it best. He said, ragtime never really went away. People just called it something else because this music just continued to evolve and really is the bedrock for most of the popular music styles that we appreciate today. That's right. So whether you're a fan of the blues or swing or country music or rock and roll, R&B, hip hop, rap, you know, any any music you really hear today, even the stuff that's on the top 100, 
you can break down those those pieces into its syncopated ragtime roots. Um, and it's really a revelation for people when they can hear something that they know personally, like even taking like a Taylor Swift song or something and turning it into a ragtime piano piece. And you're like, wait, that actually works. <laughs> Did you pick the name of your orchestra after Scott Joplin's ragtime song, Peacherine Rag? Yes, I did. Um, that rag always stuck out to me. It was actually the third rag I learned after Maple Leaf and The Entertainer. And it's sort of the tradition for these period ensembles that play this music to either choose a location or a piece of music by the classic ragtime composers as your basis for your group. And with the classic ragtime idiom, you have Scott Joplin, along with his contemporaries, James Scott and Joseph Lamb. And Peacherine always sounded a fun name to me, and I kind of ran with that when I founded the orchestra back in 2010. And it works great along with the uh, font that you put with your logo. It just, yep, it's something that you would see from that era. Exactly. And that logo is actually based on another piece of music from about 1896, the Bluffton Carnival Rag, hmm. um, which was a piece published, I think, in Indianapolis. But it has that exact same font. And, you know, the half the fun from this music is seeing the cover art that's on all the piano sheets that are beautifully illustrated with incredible fonts, imagery, and everything else. And, you know, that was, of course, their selling point back in the early 1900s. But we can then take that today and use that as the basis for our logo. One of the things that your orchestra does is you supply music for silent films, which we'll get into. So once again, explain to my young audience what a silent film is. So before we had streaming media, before we had even the television, uh, people had this thing called the photograph. And the photograph, of course, being a still image. And people wanted to figure out in the late 1800s how you could then string them together and present day-to-day -day activities as a what they called a moving picture and over time people like the lumiere brothers in france and thomas edison in america and many others figured out how to take those photos at 24 frames a second or 18 frames a second and slowly but surely were able to build these short films but because the technology at the time was so new and so different people were figuring it out there was no way to have synchronized sound or dialogue with these images that they were putting together. It left them having to create dialogue cards and title cards that would then be able to either set where the, the image that they were seeing is taking place, or maybe dialogue between two or more parties, or something just to kind of set the scene. And for about three decades, from the 1890s through the late 1920s, uh, that's how films were presented. And originally when these came out people were just enthralled that oh my gosh i can see you know these moving images in front of me on this flickering screen and then after a while people realized well if you're sitting in a darkened auditorium next to several hundred people and you're just all quietly watching this image it's a little uncomfortable we need something to set the tone and the mood and the scene and so they had piano players that would then sit and create music on the fly, usually using classical music or popular music of the day. And that's where you have stuff like the birth of the Nickelodeon, where you'd have your five or 10 cents you'd pay, go in and you'd have a pianist playing to uh, whatever was on the screen, a newsreel, a comedy, a, a short film documentary, that sort of thing. 
but of course that then led to the pianist or whoever the musician was the autonomy to pick whatever music they wanted so you could have a funeral scene going on on the screen and they could be blaring away at the stars and stripes forever didn't quite fit um and over time musical executives in hollywood and new york finally realized that they needed to have some sort of music that went along with these films and that created the whole birth of the motion picture music industry really about 1913 or so and we try to accurately recreate that movie going experience that you would have had uh in the 19 teens in the 1920s where in any moderately sized venue you would have had a small ensemble uh the average size is about 12 players which they call the american theater orchestra and that would be the ensemble that would play for every show that was occurring motion pictures vaudeville shows plays dramas concerts you name it that would have been in the ensemble behind it so name some of the other um stars like you know charlie chaplin you know that were big movie stars back then in the uh, silent movies we're very lucky that we can accompany a number of different actors films we actually have 500 or so different cue sheets in our archive uh, which also has about 15,000 musical selections alongside it. And many different artists, whoever their their films may be, we usually have something for them. So obviously big dramatic stars of the age could be like Greta Garbo or the Gish sisters or Douglas Fairbanks, who ended up becoming the big swashbuckler of his day, right, even before Errol Flynn. Um, certainly comedies are what we specialize in because that's what most modern audiences today will appreciate. And it's probably the easiest of all of the silent films for people to understand. So people like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Laurel and Hardy, Monty Banks, Charlie Chase. Um, we've, we have about 40 or 50 different films that we have scores already built for that if someone at the Bijot Theater calls us and says, hey, we want you to come out tomorrow night and do a silent film. Could you do The Freshman with Harold Lloyd? Yep, we've got it ready to go. And then off we, we head to the theater. So what size is your orchestra and what is the instrumentation? So the size of the group is standardly 11 or 12 musicians, which was the standard, what they called 11 in piano of the early 1900s when music publishers would put out this music. Again, they were putting out stock music that hopefully the arranger, when they put together these pieces, would write it so that way if you had four players or 45 players, the effect was roughly the same, even if you were missing a few parts. Um, 11 in piano, though, was the standard of that era, which was two violins, so a first and a second violin, a viola, a cello, and a bass, a flute that would double on piccolo, a clarinet, two cornets, not trumpets, uh, cornets, had much more mellow sounds because of the bore of the instrument and provided more oomph for this type of ensemble. The trumpet really didn't come into vogue for that type of music until the later part of the 19-teens. Um, then a slide trombone and then a percussionist uh, who would do everything from your, your newfangled contraption with the kick drum with a pedal um, and, of course, snare drum and all sorts of accoutrement. And then if you were a silent movie musician, that meant that you also had a trap table of various bells, whistles, sound effects, gongs, you name it, they would have it. Um, and we're very lucky to have some of that. We actually have a kit from 1918 uh, that goes on all of our shows. And then, of course, the pianist. And I double the role as conductor and sometimes pianist, depending on the film. Um, 
and certainly these ensembles could be made larger uh, with the addition of, you know, French horns and oboe, bassoon, and later on saxophones. Uh, but really from about the latter part of the 1890s up through the middle part of the 19 teens and into the 1920s, that was the standard instrumentation of the day. Um, and it's a good number of musicians. It's a very full sounding ensemble, which you wouldn't necessarily expect with 11 musicians who are all single on their part. No one's doubling. Oh, I've heard the recordings. It's it's absolutely incredible what you do. And obviously the people that you handpick for that uh, have to be into the same thing, like, wow, yeah, I really love that. And they have to be great orchestral players, and they have to play on certain mouthpieces or strings or whatever to, you know, reenact that as best as possible. Absolutely. My brass players hate me because I also force them to be on period instruments, uh, <laughs> which means that the mouthpieces they have are like one and a half C, which is bad enough for any normal concert musician, but in this sort of music where you're constantly playing, it's not quite torture, but I try to be nice to them to have them not play every single repeat. <laughs> and uh, they certainly appreciate that. Um, but our, our big thing with this, this music is trying to have it be as authentic as possible. So if they're on a period instrument, it's going to have a period sound. It's even amazing with, with the percussion, especially how much that period equipment can really change the, the timbre of your group. Uh, obviously, most modern drum sets have plastic heads and they'll have metal snares. Our kit from 1918 has uh, animal gut on the snares and it's calfskin for all the, the heads. And that produces a much deeper, much richer tone. And it's not quite as observant. You know, certainly a modern snare drum, if you hit it, it's going to really stand out. But these old time drums were meant just to accompany and not necessarily be the big star. It was to help set the beat. And it blends so well with the ensemble. And, you know, many we've actually had drummers in the audience come up to us halfway through the show and say, what kind of kid are you on? I've never heard something like this. And then those who have immediately recognize what it is. So besides playing behind silent films, what other programs and venues does the PRSO perform at? So we've been very fortunate. We've played at the Kennedy Center a few times, the Library of Congress, the American Film Institute uh, has had us out multiple times to accompany various films. And then from there, we've toured into a lot of major performing arts centers across the country. Our favorite venues, though, are the historic vaudeville and motion picture palaces from the, the teens and the twenties and the aughts and the old opera houses that date back to the 1870s and 1880s. Because again, that was going to be the type of music that you heard in these venues with the same type of ensemble. So for many theaters, they're celebrating their 120th anniversary or their, their centennial, or in some cases even older, and they want to have a period appropriate celebration so if they were built 1923 and here we are in 2023 um, and they're looking for some way to celebrate that they'll bring us in and we'll rebuild a program for 23 as much as we can playing that original music with those original films and kind of just celebrating the era in general the the fantastic music that comes from it so I read that you are the curator of different orchestra collections with an expansive repertoire of over 15,000, 15,000 orchestral scores. 
uh, that are performed and recorded by the Picharine Ragtime Society Orchestra. So please share with my listeners what the job of a music curator is. So with us, we've been very lucky that a lot of this music has been donated to us, sometimes by either the family members of the descendants um, of the performers, or in some cases, people just looking us up on the internet and realizing that this old music that they've held on to for 40 years is still being appreciated by someone. Um, and with that, it's making sure that the music is cataloged, finding out if these scores and arrangements are complete, certainly trying to preserve it, scanning in high resolution for not only my ensemble to use, but we have a lot of scholars and other musicians who will approach me trying to get copies of this music because it's hard. It's like finding hen's teeth in some cases. Um, but we've been very lucky that a number of organizations have trusted me and the or orchestra to keep this music alive and find a way to preserve not only the music of the past, but their family's legacy. Uh, one of my favorite stories is from 2018. Um, I, I love things like this. I was after, God, about three weeks of back-to-back -back weekend touring going all over the U.S. I finally got back home and sat down at my computer and I had a new email and it was from a gentleman who lived just outside of Rochester, New York. And he emailed me and said, Mr. Green, I understand you're doing uh, ragtime music and the music of the early 1900s. 50 years ago, I was in a junk shop in Rochester and picked up several orchestra collections that belonged to all of the major theaters in Rochester, including the Eastman Theater, uh, the Regent Theater, and the collections of Arthur Newberry, Fred G. Bauer, and a number of others. And it totals somewhere around four to 5,000 different titles. I am in my 70s, I am downsizing, and I'm trying to find a new home. And many other organizations have said no would you be interested in a donation? <laughs> and I called the gentleman, I think the next morning and said, absolutely. You know, I will gladly take this on and try to preserve it. And he said, great, it's yours. When do you want to come get it? And I think it was two days later, I had borrowed my parents' minivan, took out all of the seats and bribed another one of my musicians to come with me. <laughs> and we drove about seven hours north in the middle of a blizzard oh, to wow. upstate New York and got trunk after trunk of this music. And, you know, here it was, ragtime standards, jazz classics, silent film music, French music, avant-garde pieces. And a lot of that music is in regular rotation today. Um, another great story for us, a number of years ago, um, became the protege of another ragtime uh, revivalist. His name was Johnny Maddox. And for those of you who might still have your old uh, vinyl records at home, um, he was on the dot label and went by Crazy Auto in a number of different uh, past recordings and was one of the leading ragtime pianists of the 1950s and 60s and 70s um, and collected hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of pieces of music, both for piano and for orchestra. And uh, as his life was unfortunately nearing its end he was trying to find people that would be able to again preserve this music and i had met johnny a, a number of times the family approached me and said we think you're the right fit for this music would you like to take it on and i said yes and about a week later uh 14 boxes came by fedex and you know opening them is always sort of a, a treasure trove and you're not quite sure what to expect and the first box i opened 
the very first piece on the top of the stack was an original copy of Scott Joplin's Entertainer for Orchestra. Oh, come on. Oh, my God. And right below it was James Scott's Frog Legs Rag. And for me, I'm already salivating at the mouth. Um, And here ended up being about 2,000 different titles of classic ragtime and some of the best of the best of American popular music from about 1900 to actually before that, probably 1894 to 1925 or so um so a lot of the music we've recorded including our latest two albums has almost exclusively been music from the maddox collection because it has all the good stuff that (laughs) that many people love and a lot of good stuff that hasn't been heard in almost a hundred and some years well this is I mean, I can say without a doubt that this is all meant to be for you. Everything is lining up for you. And the more popular your orchestra becomes, you know, in the country and worldwide, uh, you're going to be getting more calls from people that say, hey, I got this. Doesn't mean anything to me. It was my great, great grandfather's. Uh, I just want to get rid of it and find a good home for it. Bravo. Wow. Uh, you are some lucky guy. <laughs> I am very lucky. I still remember the first the first acquisition that came in. Uh, they actually sent the piece of furniture all the music went into. And at the time, I was still living at home with my parents just after college. And they looked at me as a couple of pallets were unloaded from this truck. And they said, what the heck did you get? Uh, and I was also scratching my head because I didn't know those were coming with it. But, uh, you know, it's it's been a lot of very fun adventures with this music. I would like you to pick two or three different musical selections that you were recorded by the PRSO that you feel best represents your group that I can filter into this interview now as you speak about them. Absolutely. Well, the first one is a piece from about 1919, and it's called Meow. It was written by a gentleman named Mel B. Kaufman, who was born in New Jersey, ended up in New York City and lived there pretty much his entire life. Uh, of course, with many of these composers from that era, they all have interesting stories and backstories about them. Uh, and Mr. Kaufman is no exception. He was actually, by day, a traveling salesperson of ladies' undergarments. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. No. <laughs> uh, there's, there's newspaper accounts of him being in, like, Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, hawking kimonos and other different uh, items for people to wear. And it's bizarre how they'll they'll make these comments of what a bizarre combination this gentleman who's selling these pieces of clothing, but also a brilliant musical composer. And Kaufman wrote a number of pieces that we still know of today. They're not played very often. But if you've ever seen a Warner Brothers cartoon uh, featuring Sylvester and Tweety or in some cases Porky Pig, you've heard Mr. Kaufman's music. Meow is that cat music that is found in almost 55 different cartoons from that era. And uh, it was written in 1918. And the version that I have here is the song version that came out the next year because Meow was a huge hit. some kind of pet all day she cried 
until he sighed. I'll search around the city till I find a kitty. So he brought one home just to see if it would be company. They made him a bed out in the shed. Happily, good night then was said. But all night long, Angora sang his song. Just one tune he played, meow, somehow. Life he's longing for company, changed while he sang on merrily. That ever taunting growl, that ever haunting howl, meow. I've been very lucky. The, uh, the descendants of Mr. Kaufman's family have actually reached out and I did a whole album celebrating this composer's music, uh, who many people didn't really know of. They knew of Meow and the second piece that was very popular called Taxi, which you can actually see in a Mickey Mouse cartoon from like 1931. Um, but they didn't know anything about him. They didn't know any of the other pieces of music. And his tunes just spoke to me in the same way that Scott Joplin's did and ended up doing an album dedicated to his music uh, called Step With Pep and recorded over 20 selections of the music. So what are the other selections that you like to uh, talk about that I could play? Well, it's no surprise that my, my single favorite rag from that era is the Maple Leaf Rag. And I've been very fortunate to play it hundreds of times on piano and of course, a number of times with the orchestra. And this arrangement that you're hearing here is based off of the original arrangement from about 1903 or so that was put out by uh, John Stark, who was Joplin's publisher. Uh, the original arrangement came out in this series of uh, musical selections put together in a folio called Standard High Class Rags, which those in the ragtime world will immediately recognize as the Redback Book because of uh, its signature red, deep red covers. Um, and the, the piece has been rearranged by me to make it a little more orchestral friendly. Um, and many people will know standard high-class rags and the Redback book from a recording that was put out in the 1970s by Gunther Schuller and the New England Conservatory Ragtime Ensemble. And the rag is just such delight. It's so full of energy and spunk. We ended up recording it back in 2020 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And it's just such a fun piece. We, I can't not choose that one for anything that shows off the orchestra and the music of that era.
and then a third or I guess uh, a fourth selection I would choose then would be another comic song as you heard in Meow. It's a very funny comic song. Uh, all the composers in that era love to infuse jokes and different things into the music. And this selection is no different. Uh, it's a song called King Chanticleer, which was written in 1910 by Seymour Brown and Nat Ayer, who were a duet team, uh, songwriting team from Tin Pan Alley. And they wrote a number of tunes that many people will recognize today, including things like, Oh, You Beautiful Doll. Um, but King Chanticleer has remained a trad jazz band standard since it came out in 1910. And once again, we feature the vocal stylings of Mr. Edwards on this tune. Um, and I'm sure your listeners will also appreciate and maybe question uh, why there are random chicken noises and pig oinks and other things in there. Uh, when we were choosing out music for a digital program that we were very fortunate to record in 2020 called Peacherine Stage and Screen Spectacular, I knew I wanted to include this piece of music because it's one of my favorites. But in the original drum part for the vocal arrangement, it calls for the drummer to make all sorts of animal noises and not use an instrument, but just do them live. And we looked at each other, my drummer and I, and said, we're doing this, <laughs> maybe to our own uh, comical detriment, but here it is. And we ended up recording it uh at Salisbury University, which is one of our favorite venues. We've played there, I think, nine or ten times now in our over 12-year history. And uh, on the screen, which is actually on YouTube, you can look it up if you search for the song King Chanticleer or Peacherine Stage and Screen Spectacular. You'll get the CD singing and our comedian, uh, Miss Karen Vincent, come out with this little chicken puppet uh, acting out all of those animal noises, and it is quite a hoot. <laughs> When the sun begins to rise and you see the light in the eastern skies, you'll hear a rooster crow. No doubt you've often wondered why, if you've wakened by his morning cry, the truth you ought to know. Out in the barnyard where all is still, each day at dawn comes the call so shrill. It echoes back from the neighboring hill. I am King Chanticleer. When his mighty voice is heard, then every farmyard beast and bird you'll notice will appear. Then comes a sight that makes you stare. Answering calls come from everywhere. See all the animals gather there. So does the Peacherine Ragtime Society Orchestra have any upcoming live performances or projects that you'd like to announce? Um, well, we are going to be at the Scott Joplin International Ragtime Festival this coming June, which will be taking place in Sedalia, Missouri, which is where Joplin wrote and ultimately published the Maple Leaf Rag. We'll actually be performing on a stage about 25 feet from where that piece of music was first published. Um, which will be a great 
opportunity for people, not only in the Midwest, but for those on the East and West Coast who want to take a two or three hour flight and explore literally walking in the history of many African-American musicians who had their music published by John Stark. Um, it's quite a lot of fun. We'll also be going out to Utah this coming fall. Um, playing out in Orem at the Nordis Center for a couple of different programs around Halloween. Um, and then a number of other performances kind of sprinkled throughout. Uh, a couple of West Coast tours planned. Obviously, on the East Coast here, we travel up and down fairly often, have a, another performance, I think our 10th at Salisbury University uh, this coming March, and a number of other things that I can't quite talk about yet, but will be coming up soon. So I encourage all of your listeners to check out our website, which is peachereenragtime.com. And you'll be able to see all of the dates. We also have an email list, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the, the good stuff with social media so people can follow us. And we also like to post uh, some behind the scenes look at the orchestra on tour, as well as uh, selections from our archives that we like to share and all sorts of other fun stuff. And I understand they can purchase vinyl, right, uh, in addition to CD recordings by the orchestra. Yes, we are one of the few ensembles today that have put out recordings on 45, 33, and 78. Wow. <laughs> We've recorded a 45, which is our ragtime-style cover of the Bee Gees' Stayin' Alive and AHA's Take On Me. Um, <laughs> which you have never lived fully until you've heard the Bee Gees in a ragtime style. It also helps to prove what I said earlier, that a lot of this modern music that so many of us know by heart or, you know, will go out and sing at karaoke night or just remember from years past can be broken down into its ragtime roots. And not many people know that the Bee Gees were next door neighbors to Scott Joplin, right? That's why you did that. <laughs> yeah, of course. They knew each other very well. Very well, wow. right. <laughs> wow. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you so much. Uh, wow, what a great and interesting interview. I'm sure my audience has appreciated everything that you've talked about, uh, and I'm sure it's going to drive them to your website and other uh, platforms to listen and download and buy your music. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate it. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Yep, sounds good. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. You can follow my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Anchor.fm, and stay connected between episodes on Instagram at Got Chops Podcast. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops. Got chops.